Okay, there's uh, handouts on the table there. Just fresh printed this morning. Got back from district convention and uh, this was ready for us. We got pages 13 and 14. We're going through 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 22 today. So you want your Bible, open to 1 Peter, and if you want to use the handout, pages 13 and 14. Suffering for doing good. Top of page 13 there. Peter just urged his readers to pursue peace. Now recall how we are looking at uh, peaceful relationships within society, peaceful relationships within marriage. Now he urges them to keep at, keep at it, even when it doesn't produce the expected results. So let's read 1 Peter 3, 13-15. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. And that there's a quote from Isaiah 8. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So <laughs> the expected answer, or maybe the ideal answer to who is going to harm you if you're eager to good should be nobody, right? If you're doing good, why should you be fearing someone that's going against you? But there's evil. And it can feel crushing to bear up under suffering for doing good. Let's compare this with Matthew 5, 9 to 12. So let's open up to Matthew's Gospel. These blessings here in Matthew 5, 9 to 12, very similar. Someone want to read those verses as we compare them? 9 to through 12? Yeah, 9 to 12. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thanks. Do you see some parallels between what Peter's telling us in this part and what Jesus promised, those blessings there? Well, Peter did just that too. As a matter of fact, when they were they 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 went back to their friends and the other disciples and were, uh, felt blessed that they were persecuted for the way, right? When they were beaten, that they that they had been counted worthy of yeah. bearing the name of Christ, they, they rejoiced. So Peter and his actions showed this too. Uh, notice Jesus expects persecution for believers, right? Just as Peter's expecting believers to face persecution, and reminds them, even if you suffer for doing what is good. You see it in 1 Peter 3.14, you are blessed. doesn't seem that way. <laughs> like, are we really going to rejoice for suffering for doing good? So often we'll feel defeated, uh, despairing when we suffer for doing good. You know, what was the point? But Jesus reminds us in Matthew 5, Peter reminds us here, no, you're, you're blessed if you suffer for doing what is good. Matthew, uh, or as Jesus recorded there, Matthew reminds us, the prophets were treated that way. And as we read Peter's letter, we see, oh, the early Christians were also facing that. All right, can you give some good reasons why we need not fear the threats we face for doing good? Yeah. We know that in the end, it ends well for us. Okay, kind of <laughs> came back to the theme of the study. Peter had already mentioned our end goal. We know where we're headed, we know our inheritance, and their threats can't diminish, fade, or spoil that inheritance. It's kept in heaven for us. So that's one reason not to fear their threats. Well, we know that God's in control of everything. And if, if somebody even threatens your life, for example, they're not going to take it unless it's the Lord's will. Sure. 
So don't fear their threats right now, because even right now, he says in verse 15, in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. So that, that but, that contrast is bringing out, in contrast to being afraid of the threats of this world, revere Christ as Lord. Right now, he's Lord. So they're not in charge. God's in charge. That's another good reason. So we know where we're headed. We know the outcome. We know who's in charge right now, who's Lord overall. Sometimes it's a test to make sure you know what happened Sure. As Peter mentions, this is an opportunity for you to give a witness. Uh, this is a, a test for, for you to, as Peter mentioned in chapter 1, to show how your faith is more precious than even gold, which perishes uh, refined gold, though destroyed by fire. Your faith will be proved genuine, so that, that being proven what it is. If we didn't face these things, uh, suffering for doing good, we wouldn't have opportunity to give witness to what we have as much. So that's a, you see it in Matthew 5 as well. Uh, persecuted because of righteousness, the prophets before you. And also, God will use it for good, and you might not see the good, but other people sure. can benefit from it. Yeah, that, that's implied in that you're doing good. Who are you serving? The Lord, and he'll work it for good. Uh, we don't see that directly promised here, but we do see scripture promising that, that even the, the evil that comes our way when we do good, God's still going to accomplish his good. That's at least four reasons we have, right, for not fearing their threats as we suffer for doing good. Okay. Uh, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Can you explain how our reverence for Christ as Lord removes our fear of our enemies? Well, just that phrase, revering Christ as Lord, makes the enemy seem petty. Right. I'm going to give a little bit of reverence to my enemies and a little bit of reverence to my God. No. God is all absolute, all power, all holiness, all of our praise, all of our respect and honor. And then, yeah, how, how insignificant are our enemies when Christ is Lord and we're revering him? We forget that, that perspective. Definitely removes our fear of our enemies. Uh, set aside, I think some translations have Christ is Lord. Um, really, he's got a throne, and his throne is not just in heaven. His throne is on your heart. So every desire, every act of the will is guided by him as your king. All right, next part here, Peter talks about giving our, confessing our faith. And that, that's kind of what I saw in this section. After Peter has talked about living your life as a Christian, in your marriage, in society, with one another, now he gets into confessing your, your faith. And not just confessing your faith as you suffer, but you're confessing someone who suffered and, and is now risen. So I, I titled this section, Be Prepared to Confess Your Hope. Have you ever had someone ask you why you were a Christian? Yeah. You have to really interact with a lot of people who aren't Christian or who are actually opposed to Christianity or don't understand Christianity. I think we're, we're quite often, I think, in our society, in a Christian society, interacting with either former Christians or semi-Christians or people at least acquainted with Christian people. I think I've had other Christians question why I'm Lutheran. Okay, so maybe they question, <laughs> why are you that, that particular flavor of Christianity? <laughs> Why are, you, why are you that particular confession of faith? Right. Yeah. So yeah, definitely I think that will come up in this uh, non-denominational, de-churched society that we live in. Why do you have that stance of Christianity? Why can't you be like the rest of them? Sure. What caused them to ask you about it? If someone ever asked you why you were a Christian or why were you a particular branch of Christianity, what caused them to ask? Yeah, Peter's going to get to that. So, okay, why do you do what you do in regard to baptism? So why do you look to hope in baptism? Why do you confess that baptism saves? Well, Peter's going to get to that. You know, be prepared to give an answer, uh, that you believe in the means God's given for grace, 
when he says baptism saves you? Why do you believe that? Right, let's read First uh, Peter 15. Oops, that should say chapter 3 there. First Peter 3, 15 to 17. There are no chapters 15 to 17, so. <laughs> but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And Peter's going to mention that that very sentiment, to suffer for doing God's will is a good thing, uh, about two or three times throughout his letter here. Can you describe your hope in Christ as Lord? So Peter says, be prepared to give an answer for the, the hope you have. How would you describe your hope in Christ as Lord? I'm asking you now, right? So are you ready? Describe it for me. The Bible says that the world and everything in it was created through Christ. And because of that, everything and everyone belongs to him. Um, we are given free will. And because he died for my sins and for the sins of the whole world, um, he has given us, through repentance and faith uh, and baptism, salvation, and we can go to heaven. Meanwhile, we are to praise him and to uh, learn as much about him and to love him as much as possible. Sure. So initially, like you brought that in there, he is Lord, and rightly Lord, because he's the creator. Jesus is not just a man. He is true God. So your, your hope is not in, and you pointed to scripture too, the scripture reveals him as true Lord, creator of all. And also, uh, as Lord, in that we, we owe him so much, a, a great debt for our sin that he's paid for us. As Peter says, he's redeemed us. Yeah. And then when it comes to, to free will, well, right now, yeah, we, we choose him as our Lord, but we'll see how he, he called us to be his own. Yeah. So he's made me trust in him, brought me to know him, to believe in him as creator, savior. Those are all good points. I think we need to identify the person of Jesus as true God and true man in that answer. Other thoughts? Things you might add or clarify at all? Okay. I'm sure there's a lot to. I would just, I would myself, I would just start out saying, uh, I base my hope on on the Word. Yeah. Go back to the Word, and then he start, is the Word, and then say, and then explain what's in the Word. Sure. It shows us that God is the Creator of everything, and like she said, and then you can go and expound all those points, like, and it's all in here. And yeah, it's readily available to anyone. All they have to do is read it. When you give a reason for the hope that you have, um, you can directly share the word, you know, what it reveals in summary, or you can say, look at the word and invite someone to turn to that powerful word. Christ is the word made flesh, and through his word, you have that hope. Yeah? And I just sometimes, well, I guess I should say surprises me, or I wonder why they don't, but because I was like that myself. <laughs> yeah. But uh, once you get into it and you start reading it and you attend these Bible classes and you learn and, and it, you're, you're strengthened and, and so forth, your faith is strengthened. It's like, it's like boy, they're missing out. Yeah. There's just so much. Right, like chapter 2, Peter says, like, newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. Now that you've tasted, the Lord is good uh, to grow in that. Good. Okay, can you give some reasons why? Because things will come our way. Why do you remain confident? Some of you just shared, you know, the summary or the direction you look to for your hope as Christ is Lord. Why can you remain confident in that no matter what comes your way? So why, why are you guys still confessing Christ as Lord, even though 
The world might say he's failed you as Lord and he's, he's allowed you to suffer or to bear crosses in this life. Why can you still remain confident he's Lord? Because he promises. It's faith. It's not based off of what happens right now. It's based off of his word. His promises. His promises, not in... He can't break, he can't break a promise. Not necessarily something we hold. Himself. Okay, so God is faithful, yeah. So you can be confident not in that you have been able to obtain it, but the faithfulness of your God and the promises of his word. So the reason for the hope that we have is, is not hope in something that we might obtain it. It's sure hope of a promise, something looking forward to in the future that God has attained for us. So you always want to put the direction on Christ when they say, well, how can you still trust him? Well, he is faithful. Well, his word is good. What has he ever done for you? That's funny. <laughs> well, let me tell you that. <laughs> Start listing, yeah. Or not him personally, but or what is the church ever done for me? You know? So Peter's given you direction to be ready to give an answer. He's given you ready to share the hope that you have. Yeah, welcome, Cindy. We're on. Uh, there's handouts there. It's on page thirteen, fourteen. Um, we're on the middle of page thirteen. So Peter's not only told us to give an answer for the hope, but now he gives us the the method or the attitude, mm -hmm. you could say. He says, but speak with gentleness and respect. Mm -hmm. That's the hard part. Right. And I think we talked about that on, on Sunday a bit as part of our, our discussion on the Sunday Bible study. Uh, social media can be a wasteland for bitter remarks and comments. One time, uh, this wasn't too long ago, when Rock of Ages was offering free music lessons and promoting it online, an unbeliever attacked it and charged it was not free if it included Christian doctrine. Another person on social media viciously responded back to the bitter commentator trying to defend the Christian program. And just want to note, they weren't directly connected with Rock of Ages, they just wanted to defend our program. What happens when a Christian shares their faith but doesn't do it in a kind way? Well... <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know your your actions don't follow what you're saying. So you're preaching a God of forgiveness and patience and love and abounding mercy, and here you are. All they did was make one small comment, and you're just attacking me right away. Yeah. Creates a division. Sure. You preach of a Lord who came to win the lost and to seek and to save what was lost, and you're attacking the lost just because he made some comment against you. So Peter talks about bearing up under suffering with gentleness and respect. Even if someone attacks you for giving the reason for the hope you have, even if for doing good you suffer, and if you do it with gentleness and respect, uh, you reach with the message both by your, your attitude and also your words. How would you respond to a similar attack against your church? So say someone attacks, you're just trying to serve the community and share the gospel, and someone attacks with some malicious, hateful comment. How would you respond? Well, wouldn't. A lot of times you don't. Yeah, it doesn't because always require a response. A lot of times, and I won't mention names, but a good example would be like in our political arena, where somebody attacks one person, now that person they attacked tries to repay or, or fight back and says something mean and nasty. And now, now they're both looking. If the guy that was attacked first would just shut up, everybody would see for what, what this other guy was worth. They would see him for what he was. Right. Eventually, the, the attacker reveals themselves because of their, their hatred. So you don't, yeah. you don't need to expose their evil and say, you're a hateful, awful person for, you know, they're exposing themselves. You don't, you don't need to do that. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't really leave that comment up for too long because this guy kept, you know, fighting back with this person. But I just commented because I thought, okay, they're making it look like we are charging for the program or something. I just clarified, no, the program is free. We we also share the good news for free, uh, just so you, that's that's clear. And so the person didn't like chase people away by thinking we're actually sneakily trying to charge a fee or something. Uh, but just let them know that the good news is free, too, along with the program. Eventually, I had to delete the comment because this other person kept going back and attacking this other person, and it got into a little squabble. But what has Peter told us? We've been reading about that, right? Uh, not to be quarrelsome. And that was part of what we saw in um, 2 Timothy uh, 2, right? 
uh, not to quarrel or argue. Do you know how hard that is for even a recovering lawyer? <laughs> yeah. Because we, we know God's word, and we know the truth, and we've been enlightened, but just to take that same patience for the lost, right, that God displayed to us. I think it's easier for people to be quarrelsome online because you're not actually like looking at the person yeah, and interacting with them. So you feel like, because there's that screen between you, you feel like right. you can just be a jerk and say whatever. <laughs> so it's easier. Except with my relatives and old friends, and that's really stupid of me. It's easier for them to attack you online, but it's also easier for you to lash back. So you have to take these words of Peter with to heart, especially when you're online. Do this with gentleness and respect. And so if, if you're feeling personally angry and attacked, and just step back, think about Christ. Think about a response that would be Christ-like. Not bitter in any way, or not trying to get that little jab in there at them, but just displaying graciousness. Like even like you said with the political stuff, I had a friend I've known since high school, and he kept going on and on and on. And finally, I just said, you know, enough. Do whatever you want to do. If you're gonna be, you know, take me off your list. And see happens. And then there's like five other people just like attacking him. I just said, no, enough is enough. Just, just don't even say nothing anymore. Right. So I told the other people. And sometimes, kind of Bill started us with this, sometimes silence is a gracious response when a person just doesn't want to talk politely. Uh, just leave it at that and say, sorry you feel that way. And, uh, I'm friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he did with me. I said, you know what, why can't we be friends? It doesn't matter our political stance. Yeah, <laughs> That's what I said, you know. And he just, like, I was like, okay, that's fine, I meant. Yeah, I, I responded to this person with a private chat message, and they said, well, you seem like a nice person, but he doesn't. And, <laughs> it, you know, you can kind of reflect, not, not everybody is going to lash out on the name of Christ. We kind of mentioned this bottom discussion, the, the greater the attack against the Christian, the greater the chance the attack will backfire. That's true, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, that if they come across as raging and uh, wanting to destroy you, and you're responding graciously, the world will see um, there's a, there's a war going on here. One side is on the affront and the attack. The other side is simply trying to defend the truth. Well, I don't think that didn't have to be at all. Um, I was thinking of greater attacks, like abortion, homosexuality. Yeah. Yeah. It's not backfiring. Yeah. I mean, it will in the end, yeah. but that's been around for thousands of years, and like Roe versus Reyes, 40 years. Like, it's not backfiring. Yeah, not on not on a large scale it seems yeah, yeah. but it, it still will uh, it will reach people. <laughs> well, individually there are you know, documented cases where individually it had backfired when the people went ahead with it, but then had the remorse later yeah. for having done it. Right. Well, even the the person that was originally in the the court battle is now against it. So it, it eventually evil is, well, she went shows itself. Forth. She may have gone back and forth. Okay. Yeah. She was she was looking for attention. She didn't she didn't, she wasn't not a principled woman or a Christian or sure. Yeah, she was she was a lost soul. Yeah, she'd go for either side if there was any publicity in her. In the end, the the person that is exposed to evil and sees evil will will need the gospel. Yeah, otherwise they'll remain lost. All right, let's go to uh, page fourteen. So we're still discussing confess the crucified and risen one. First Peter 3.18. So he's just talked about suffering for doing good and for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. I'm going to pause there, just the first part there. That's the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? So Christ whose righteous suffered for sins once for all. And what's the result of that? It brings us to God. Pretty good gospel in a nutshell, I think. Uh, why You could get into the person of Christ. Why is he righteous? And who did he die for and suffer for? The unrighteous, not people who deserve it. So it's got grace in it. And it's got sin in it. And it's got the, the promise of the gospel. He's bringing us to God. 
not in judgment, but actually bringing us to God in peace. So that's an, a really neat gospel in a nutshell. Can you share any other gospel in a nutshell verses? So this could be a, a very basic tagline if you want to share the gospel. Well, what, God what's another so loved one? The world. John 3.16, yeah. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes will not perish, but have eternal life. That's the gospel in a very short, concise statement. Other verses that might come to mind? I like uh, Romans 6. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. A very short gospel in a nutshell. Well, Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, yeah. Uh, that God says, I will put enmity between Satan and the woman, between believers and unbelievers, between the one who will come of the woman and crush the serpent, even though he himself will be struck. So God's going to undo the work of the devil through one born of the woman. There are certainly other verses we could discuss, but just wanted to kind of review some of those, those gems in Scripture that really summarize the gospel. Explain why our presentation of the gospel needs to involve Christ's death and resurrection. So if you're, if you're giving, as Peter says, a, a reason for the hope you have, notice what Peter does. He says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. But he doesn't stop there. We've got, we got to read the second half of verse 18. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So he gets to the resurrection. And we'll talk about that regarding Christ, uh, alive in the spirit expression here. Different translations have approached that different ways. But it's basically getting to the resurrection, the, the exaltation of Christ. So he's got put to death, but made alive. Why must our presentation of the gospel include Christ's death and resurrection? doesn't have to have it to get that little nutshell, but ultimately, why do you need that? Well, it's the resurrection that is the victory. Yeah. I mean, if it was just his death, well, then death beat him. Right. <laughs> it, all, it all has to lead to the resurrection. I mean, certainly you can say Christ died for your sins, and that, that's the gospel. But the real power of the gospel is going to be the, the full message that includes Christ rising to life. Uh, the same one who died for you now lives for you. He is Christ, not he, Christ as, was Lord, but set apart Christ as Lord. He's the living Lord. So as you share the gospel, quite quickly we'll jump to the cross, but don't forget to include the crown in, in your gospel summaries, uh, that we want people to have a crown faith, not just a cross faith. So he's the living, crowned, made alive king, so let's go to those side notes just real quick because this is kind of important. Uh, translations will approach this differently where it says, he was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. And what I'm going to kind of call this, it's on your, your left-hand column of the study guide, the spirit-flesh antithesis. So it, it's something you see happening a couple times in scripture where it puts the word flesh and it puts it next to the word spirit. And it's talking about two states of being. Not just that you know Jesus was somehow spiritually made alive. We know that's not what Peter's talking about. So different translations render this in the spirit with a capital S or in the spirit, small s. Keeping in mind, Greek didn't have small case letters. It was, it was just all the capital letters, the, the Greek that was written down here. The Christian Standard Bible includes the footnote or in the spiritual realm. So put to death in the body, made alive in spiritual in the spiritual realm. And we see that expression come up in Scripture, spiritual things, the heavenly things. The EHV Bible includes a footnote which reads, Here, spirit, small s, is a reference to Christ's state of exaltation. And they tell you to look at Romans 1.4 and 1 Timothy 3.16. Romans 1.4 and 1 Timothy 3.16 are other Times in Scripture when the Apostle Paul uses this, uh, Peter's writing here, but Paul has spirit, flesh, and he contrasts the two. And when Paul does that, when he contrasts spirit and flesh in the Greek, he's contrasting a state of lowliness with a state of exaltation. That's what he's doing. 
So basically the EHV is listing two other times when the New Testament authors contrast these Greek words for flesh and spirit. If you look at those, you can see how they're referring to those two different states of Christ at the time when he lowered himself and the time when he was exalted in glory. And it fits the context here when, when you look at this. He was put to death in the body. So obviously that's talking about the time when Christ lowered himself, right? He suffered once for sins. But what's the other side of the coin? Made alive in spirit. So put to death in the body, made alive in spirit. So if you start to see body as in the, the, the realm of lowliness and spirit as the realm of exaltation, you can start seeing how Paul makes this, this two modes of existence. In fact, Peter uses the same spirit flesh in regard to us. Let's jump to 1 Peter 4, 6. So these are the same words by the same author in the same context. So 1 Peter 4, 6, though this is a somewhat difficult to understand verse, it's not if you start understanding the spirit, flesh, antithesis in the way that it's used in the rest of the Bible. 1 Peter 4, 6, Peter says, For this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead, that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but alive, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So it's the same spirit, flesh, antithesis in regard to the body, in regard to the spirit, is how they translate in my Bible. Um, but here it's talking about the time when we're right now living on this earth, but also when we come to faith or when we're in glory. We live in regard to the spirit. So he's contrasting the two states. Yeah. The spirit dwells within all of our hearts, too. Right, and you'll notice you could, you could use the capital spirit, but notice the Greek doesn't have that. Here the NIV the second time chooses small spirit. Live in regard to the spirit. So we are that new self. We're alive in Christ. But according to the old self, dead. So two different states of existence is what it really is contrasting. So wait, I'm still having trouble understanding 4 verse 6. <laughs> yeah. We're going we're gonna to get to 4 verse 6 in more detail. As far as that verse can be difficult. But if you understand it as according to human standards in regard to the body. So when we're living in this, this life, we're, we're judged by humans according to human standards. But we are actually alive according to God's standards. So when it says preached even to those who are dead, yeah. is, is it saying spiritually dead? Or like when Jesus went to hell to preach to the spirits of prison? Right, so the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead if you look at it, some people take that, we're going to look at this later on, but it's going to talk about a play on words between dead, as in spiritually dead, and spiritually alive. That's why he says, we are judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live, are alive in regard to the spirit. Well, the spirits in prison, those are all people that are already condemned. He's, he's talking about conversion here. So, spiritually dead versus alive. Paul uses that picture, too. Who uses that picture, too? Uh, look in Ephesians 2, where Paul says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins. We're, we're going to look at 4, verse 6 in more detail. Okay. I just wanted to draw it in so you see now. Paul uses, or Peter is using that same spirit flesh comparison to talk about two states of being. Uh, from the state of being of you're outside of God's kingdom and unbelief to the, the fact that you're converted, you're alive in Christ. Well, he's using it to talk about the state of being Christ when he lowered himself and Christ when he's exalted. So the spirit-flesh comp comparison contrast here is talking about two different states of being. Not necessarily, oh, Jesus was only spiritually made alive, not really resurrected. So it's really contrasting those states of being. <laughs> Okay, since this is causing <clears throat> some confusion, let's look at the other times then the Bible uses this. Romans 1 4. Paul says, Who through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Christ our Lord. So Romans 1 verse 4 is the other time you see the spirit-flesh comparison. 
So look at verse 3. Regarding his son, who to his earthly life, and if you look at your NIV, who according to the flesh. So verse 3 has flesh. Who, as to his flesh, earthly life, as it's translated, was a descendant of David. So it's talking about his human nature, right? Then verse 4. And through who the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Anyone have a different translation in verse 4? Verse 4, I have a footnote. Who was declared with power to be the Son of God. So what's translated here, spirit of holiness, is really that spirit flesh antithesis. So according to his earthly life, he was a descendant of David, but through his resurrection, his exaltation as its spirit here was appointed to be the son of God in power. So you see there in Romans 1, Paul's talking about Jesus as a human descent and his lowliness when he would live and walked as the son of David on earth, but also now is shown to be God's son in power and his exaltation. So the words in the Greek, you'd have to look at the Greek, are actually flesh and spirit, and it's contrasting the two. And then you can also look at um, 1 Timothy 3.16, Actually, I did a whole study on this at one point. But 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul also uses the spirit-flesh contrast here. And various translations will take this differently. But when you start to see the contrast, so it says, He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit. And the footnote here in my NIV has, or vindicated in spirit, that's what it says in the Greek. Not by the Spirit. So it's just Spirit there. So when your NIV capitalizes that, it makes it look like, oh, by the Holy Spirit. But once again, Paul is contrasting the state of humiliation with the state of exaltation. So 1 Timothy 3.16 is essentially saying Jesus appeared in lowliness in the flesh. He was vindicated or justified, that is, declared who he is in a state of glory. Essentially, what we confess in the Creed. So that spirit-flesh antithesis is used four times in the Bible, twice by Peter, twice by Paul, and every time it fits, if you, if you see, is a state of lowliness and a state of exaltation. Okay? What does the antithesis mean? What's that? What does the antithesis mean? The opposite of... Antithesis? <laughs> you need your writing. They're in contrast to one another. They stand in opposition. So if you look at what Peter did, what we just read in, in 1 Peter 3, Peter's basically saying right there that Jesus died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And he says, he was put to death in lowliness but made alive in glory. If you want to paraphrase how, what he's saying. Does that make sense? Yeah. Can you tell us again, um, because I would like it in my notes, Ephesians what? What was the one in Ephesians? Ephesians 2 talks about that picture of the dead being those who are spiritually dead. So sp spiritual death is what it's talking about there in Ephesians 2. The first couple verses there. Yeah, okay, got it. Thank you. All right, so even though it's a, a big sidetrack there, I thought that was important to kind of iron out. And yes, if someone has their Bible and has a capital S for spirit there, and they have like, you know, Jesus made alive by the Spirit. Even though the Greek doesn't say the Spirit, it says Spirit. That's not entirely a wrong understanding because he was raised by the, the Father and Christ was made alive again. But really the, the best fit is his state of lowliness and his state of glory is the way that that's used in the language there. When you compare it with the way Peter uses it elsewhere and when you compare it with the way Paul uses it, and it, I know it's a little bit harder when you're not looking directly at the Greek and you have to rely on, well, what's the translation telling me here? All right, the risen one made his victory announcement. So now we get 1 Peter 3.19. After being made alive, so it's not talking about his, you know, some spiritual, it's the real resurrection. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. This is one of the rare verses that direct us to consider what we confess in the Apostles' Creed. Remember that, that portion of the Apostles' Creed we say, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. 
So where do we get that from? Well, Peter mentions that. It's, the Apostles' Creed is not just some traditional saying. It's based off the teaching of the Apostles. And here Peter says, He went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. This is one of the most direct references in the New Testament of this uh, descent into hell. You could also look at Colossians 2.15. There he alludes to the triumph that Jesus made over his enemies by the cross. Explain why Jesus' descent into hell must be taken as part of his exaltation. Just look at what Peter says here. And why was it written down for our comfort? Not for, oh, that's that was part of his suffering. No, it was his exaltation, his glorification. His victory lap. Referred to. Sure, you could say it's his victory lap. Uh, when Peter says here, made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, it's kind of unfortunate because I think it was the King James Version even um, had the word preach to the spirits. And that's the, the bottom left footnote on this page. The scriptures make it clear that there's no second chance after death that you're going to preach to the, the spirits in hell. All who died in the flood... And all the devil's angels are already condemned and held to the final judgment. Uh, the Greek word here that Peter uses is caruso, which means to make an announcement. It can include the gospel. So you, when you say caruso and then you say the word for gospel or good news, it can mean proclaim the gospel, but it also can mean anything that's proclaimed. So it's different from the Greek word oiangelizo, which means preach the good news or evangelize. So when the King James translated it preach, and many other translations use a similar concept, they're kind of adding a connotation that doesn't exist in this word, necessarily. And we know from context, why would Peter, when he uses the word proclaim to the spirits of prison, mean proclaim good news to the imprisoned spirits? They're still imprisoned. He didn't set them free. They remain in prison. So, like Bill said, that, that's to our comfort. The devil might think he's won the day, but he knows he's lost. Uh, he made his, kind of, you might say, a, a, not just a victory lap, but a, a speech. You know, like the president is elected, and then he goes to the microphone before the media and says, you know, I accept the results, I, I, you know, and the other concedes the defeat. It's a clear proclamation to all the spiritual realm. Christ is victorious. And as Jesus says, the devil knows his time is short. Uh, he has lost the battle. And all those who follow the devil know their time is up and they have, they have lost. Yeah. But I was thinking, it's kind of like I told you so. I mean, that's not, not in a vindictive or mean way, though. Right. Because Jesus doesn't do that retaliate. So when we say deliver us from evil, isn't that a comfort to know he's proclaimed victory over evil and the devil was silenced, could do nothing about it? Or when we say in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell... That's not the next stage of his suffering, but it's the first proclamation for our benefit that Scripture records. He's victorious over the devil and all his angels and all the enemies of God. All right, uh, final portion for today. Confess and treasure his means of grace. 1 Peter 3, 20-22. Have you got time to get into that? Yep. So 1 Peter 3, 20-22. So we got to fit in the context here. He says, he made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, and then he's describing them, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism. Notice it's not saying baptism is a symbol, but what happened in the real flood is a picture of what really happens in baptism. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you. What is it in that sentence? Baptism. Baptism saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heavens and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So Paul or Peter rather has taken us now from... Christ suffered for sins once for all. Christ died for <coughs> sins. Christ was made alive. Christ preached to the spirits in prison. And now he says, Christ has gone into heaven and is seated at God's right hand. You see the Apostles' Creed here? 
You have all the steps in the Apostles' Creed except for his coming to judge, but that's coming, uh, are mentioned here in this little section of Peter's letter. He suffered, died, descended into hell, rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, all included right here. How does Peter use the way the people in the flood were saved, that was God's means, to teach us about the means of grace in baptism? So the means of grace which God gives in baptism. What do you mean? Say that again, please. Ask that again, please. So Peter uses the way that the people in the flood were saved. How were they saved in the flood? By means of God's working. Really, in a sense, the water, but they were lifted up in the ark in that water. So they were kept safe, kept safe by God in the flood. That was his means. His chosen means was they'd be spared in the ark to teach us about the means of grace and baptism. So just as they were saved in the flood by God's ark, that was his means of saving, what is his means of saving us? Baptism. Baptism. So God uses means, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. Use this part of scripture to respond to the statement, baptism doesn't save you. Yes, it does. How do you know? Because the word says so. God's word says so. Not just there, but... Oh, so that's what I want to discuss next. Okay, so Peter says twice here, baptism saves you. And he says it's not just cleaning your body, it's it's a clean conscience before God. What are you so. gonna how do you respond then to Oh, thank you. I will look at it after Bible study. Thank you. Um what do you say some, to someone then? What about the thief on the cross who wasn't baptized? Well, does God say baptism is required for saving? In a sense, yes. Those who reject it, reject God's means. But look at Mark 16, 16. I think that's a good reference. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. So the lack of baptism doesn't necessarily condemn. It's you're saved through faith. But that is given in baptism. Also, the before the thief on the cross, we don't know if he actually was an Israelite. Jesus didn't give baptism to the non-Israelites, but he did talk about non-Israelites being saved. It's only after his resurrection he said, "Baptize all nations." Another scripture I like about baptism was Pentecost. Mm-hmm. After you know. The, the speaking in tongues and somebody made the remark that oh, they must be drunk. Mm-hmm. And then Peter gave, got a, gave his little sermon and explaining all what had happened. And after he was done speaking, then the people heard this. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The part of this is the part two. The promise is for you and your children. Sure, there's so much, so much in there. And your children. So it's a means for all ages. Yeah, we definitely see that. But notice, this is once again Peter speaking. That's Acts two, and Peter's saying, "You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit," and he calls it a promise, and he says it's for forgiveness of sins. And there's baptism. That's the means which Peter included on the day of Pentecost for salvation. So baptism saves. Peter says it. Um, Luke records Peter preaching it. What else do we see? So we got, what are other ties of scripture where baptism is part of God's means for grace to receive his gifts? So Peter... Okay, when Jesus was baptized, there's a picture, isn't there? What did Jesus receive at his baptism? Obviously, he didn't need forgiveness, but what did he receive in his baptism? Approval from his father. Okay, the father called him his son, so the father put his name on him, and the Holy Spirit came down as a gift to empower him according to his human nature for his task. So Jesus, in his baptism, received the Holy Spirit. We, in our in our water baptism, don't think you have to, some teach, have a second baptism. In our water baptism, just as Jesus received the Spirit, we receive the Spirit as a gift. So it is a means of a grace, that is, God gives his gifts in baptism. So Peter says it, Peter preaches it in Acts, 
Jesus' example of his baptism is there. Uh, when Jesus tells us to make disciples, it's one of the means by baptizing and by teaching. So one of the means for conveying God's grace is baptism. Uh, you could look at Paul in his writings where he says, um, baptism saves you. And he says, it's a washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Not because of what we've done, but God's gift is his mercy. Or you can look at Jesus in John's Gospel, John 3. You must be born again of water and the Spirit to enter God's kingdom. So God gives that rebirth. Uh, you don't make, give yourself a new birth, but you receive it uh, as you're born again of water and the Spirit. Why is the reason why you want to give a baptism when you're eight days old? Um, eight days old is not a command of God, but quite often people will baptize soon, early on. Uh, circumcision, that was something that was prescribed you know, by the eighth day, if possible, and often done on the eighth day. So if circumcision marked you as a child of God and was God's covenant promise for his people, people reflect that also in baptism. Paul at one point even makes a, a parallel there. And some people say, oh, see, just as circumcision was a symbol, baptism is a symbol. But it was also a mark, a sign, and a covenant. So it had God's promise attached to it. So if somebody, um, if someone is baptized, that's actually a physical demonstration of basically committing to Christ. I mean, by faith. It has to be both. Well, when Peter says here it's a pledge of a clear conscience toward God, the problem is how do you understand pledge there? Is it our pledge? Or his. Or is it his pledge? Okay, so what if somebody is, say... Um, that your conscience is now clear. Yeah, or that you're making a promise to God that I'm going to keep my conscience clear. What, but if somebody, if somebody is baptized because, because their parents want them to be baptized, say when they're uh, uh, a teenager, yeah. then does that, I hate to use the word, cover them if they go on to lead a totally godless life? Right. Strictly speaking, is it baptism that saves or faith which is given in baptism? But it's both. It has to be both. Yeah, it's, it's really, we're saved through faith, but God conveys the gift of faith and the Holy Spirit in baptism. Yes, you can lose it. So I think that's where you're getting it. Yeah, anything you don't feed dies. Right. You know, if you don't feed children, they die. <laughs> if you don't feed your faith given in baptism, that dies. Just like you could give your child the gospel, and it can bring them to faith, but if you don't continue to feed that faith, they can reject it and lose lose that faith. Well, the, the simple well, start might be just what Peter says here. It saves you. Start with that in context. Okay. So if it's if it's a saving gift. But if someone is, for example, baptized as a baby, and um, I, I don't want to give too convoluted an example here, but but raised in a Christian home and taught everything that they should be taught. Um, but then just dismisses that in their lifestyle when they're responsible for feeding their own faith, not their parents. Um, is that baptism valid? Even, even though all the markings are there. Right, so they've received the deposit, the gift of the Spirit, and yet evidently fallen away from faith. Right. Uh, can that happen? Certainly. We have examples of that. Uh, Judas would not have been denying baptism, right. uh, which was given to the Israelites already at that time. Right. And you have examples uh, where people come to faith and fall away from faith. You, you can deny, reject God's gifts. Mm -hmm. uh, baptism is not some irrevocable gift that you somehow you're, you're trapped and you know, oh, can't deny or fall away from faith. So then if you come back to 
if you if you come back to the faith of your parents, not yours, yeah. initially, I mean, as you were being raised, you you heard everything, you believed it at the time, you um, dismissed it, but then when you come back at an older age recognizing the truth of Scripture, yeah. then, then do you need to be baptized because then you have the faith, or is the first baptism sufficient? Is that what protected you, that and the faith of your parents? Right. Once you start to see baptism as a gift of God, then the answer becomes clear. And the, the early church saw it that way. They saw baptism is God's gift. He pours out his spirit. And it's not your commitment or your gift to God, but his gift to you. Okay. Then what it, what's said in Ephesians 4 about one baptism, not just the unity of one baptism, we're all baptized the same, but that's all you need is God is faithful even if we are faithless. And we looked at that Bible verse uh, where it says, you know, if we are faithful, he re if we are faithless, he remains faithful. So... The early church recognized you don't need to be baptized every time you sin or every time it looks like you fell away from the faith or even every time that you denied or fell away from the faith. Uh, one baptism was all that was required because God's promise is true even if we don't live worthily or if we even stray away from it, uh, that we are still his own. So there hasn't been a practice in most of the Christian church until modern times to, to re-baptize people. Because baptism was not a dedication, like you're dedicating yourself. It was God giving you his gift. Right. Okay, gotcha. So that, that's more of a... Kind of put it on the same tier as Christ died once for all. Right. And you were baptized once. Or as Peter says here, it saves you not by your righteous life. It right. saves you by the resurrection of Christ. So as sure as Christ lives and has died... Uh, and he's your living God, that's the power of baptism, not your life or your faith. So when you start to see that, suddenly baptism is a comfort. Mm -hmm. Baptism is, a, oh, did I do enough? Did I live up to my baptism promise? No, baptism is the comfort that God is faithful, God has paid for my sin. And in faith, you can take comfort that I have a clean conscience towards God rather than, did I do enough? Yeah. So you, you kind of see how this modern invention of making baptism into a dedication is actually work righteousness. It actually puts the focus on yourself and sanctified in piety. But the, the historical teaching of baptism and the scriptural teaching is baptism saves you because it depends on God and his promise and his word. Uh, be baptized and wash your sins away. doesn't mean you need to keep doing it over and over again. God has done it for you. You're in grace. Yeah, you had a comment? Oh, I just really like the um, parallel that Bill made. Jesus doesn't need to die and rise again every time you fall away from faith and come back. He, he did it once, and that's good, no matter how many times you fall away and come back. Like, right. baptism is his gift, and it's good. It's done, no matter how many times you fall away and come back. And because we fall away, that's why, we, we one, we need the faithfulness of God, but also that's why this question comes up today, and it came up in the ancient church. And it was addressed not just, you know, with... You know, Paul saying one baptism, and Paul saying if we are faithless, he remains faithful. It also was addressed in the, one of the ecumenical councils. That means all the, the known Christians gathered in the world uh, in Nicaea, and they came up with the confession, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, that was part of their, their belief. Uh, they knew people struggle, they, they fall into sin and temptation, but one baptism, and that baptism it says, and it's the same word for the Lord's Supper too in Matthew 26, for the forgiveness of sins. Um, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, Peter says in Acts 2. Be baptized, it, it saves you, Peter says in 1 Peter 3. Paul says in Ephesians 5, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her as a, a holy church without blemish, wrinkle, or any other defect. So when you look at all the verses that talk about baptism, it's very clear. It's, it's a gift. And God pours out his gifts of his spirit, forgiveness, new life, and it doesn't depend on us. Thanks. That's a really good explanation because, um, and I, I have personal reasons for that. I was thinking about my father sure. who, who, he was baptized. My parents raised him like all the rest of us. And 
and yet he lived a life just filled with sin and proudly. And of course, when he passed, since he lost the ability basically to speak at the end, it's troubled me a lot. Sure. Because then if God, if baptism was salvation, a demonstration of salvation, but not based on his faith, then if it's a gift from God, then... I wouldn't say not based on his faith, because we, we so often put the focus on our faith, but God's gift. Right, exactly. That's what I mean. If it's God's gift, then there's a possibility that at the very end, God said, no, I've been protecting you. And now, he was just like a small child. He was unable to express his faith, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have that, faith. Because right, so. faith is the, the work of God. Right. Yeah. Isn't faith and gift sort of the same thing? Mm-hmm. If you're a child and you get baptized, God gives you the grace to move on. You may get the faith later on in your life. Right. He's, he's, gonna, he's got it all planned out for you, basically. Back to the Ephesians 2. Now we're at the Ephesians 2 8, the gospel in a nutshell. It's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is a gift of God, not by works. Uh, oh, I would say that babies who are baptized do have faith. They might not have the head knowledge, but faith isn't faith is different from having a head knowledge. Right. You actually see in Acts 19, the, the people that were baptized by John didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit, but still, Paul doesn't call them. Unbelievers, actually, they're called disciples. And in Acts 19, those disciples were baptized and they were instructed after that, but they already had faith. And so Paul lays his hands on them, instructs them about the gifts of the Spirit. So, yeah, you, you want to be careful not to make this into an intellectual exercise. It's the gift of God. So when Peter says baptism saves you, i got the bottom of the page here. Do you see any connection between all of Noah's family and the ark is saved despite their worthiness? And Peter urging us in Acts 2 to have our entire household baptized? So why not give? Why not bring your family in the ark? Uh, they can certainly jump out of the ark if they want, but bring them in the ark. Give them the gift of God that is the means for salvation. And Peter says all of, all of the family was saved that was in that ark, that had God's means. You can reject the means, yes, but give them God's means of grace. Give them baptism. Give them the gospel. And God will save through his means. So what we mean by the means of grace is God chose to use that method. I have a question. Yeah. I mean, people who have asked me, does baptism save? Most of them I've known that they're asking because... I don't know if they're feeling guilty or what. They've had people who have been baptized who totally lived against God. And they're trying to comfort themselves thinking, well, maybe, I mean, Brad, somebody, they still may believe someone. But from their actions or anything else, we know they didn't believe. Right. So I would point that person to Romans 6, where Paul's, he's actually talking about, if you've been baptized, you've been baptized into a new life. Uh, that person can reject that. that. He says, if if you've been baptized, by no means are you going to live against Christ. You've been born to live a new life, just as Christ is alive and lives a new life. But they didn't live a new life. And if they didn't, that's just evidence of unbelief. Yeah. Okay, so I mean, I I can't constantly say, yes, I think baptism saves. Baptism. But I know what they're asking. Yeah, faith saves, but baptism brings you to faith. It gives you the gift of the Spirit. Yeah. Say that again. I like that. Please. I've got to think about that. Well, that's just John 3 right there. You must be born again. Baptism gives you a new birth of faith. When Peter says baptism saves you, it's God's means to bring you into his kingdom. Or as Paul says, by the washing of rebirth by the Holy Spirit, the the working of the Holy Spirit in baptism. Now, can you reject the working of the Spirit? Certainly. That's that's the one sad... uh, Someone mentioned free will. That's the one sad free will we actually have spiritually speaking, is to reject God. Good discussion. So it's a neat picture. Just picture the ark. Picture it floating in the water. And all the people in the world perish except for those who had God's means of rescue. Now picture today. Who are those that will be saved? It's those who have God's means of rescue. The Spirit given in baptism. 
the gospel, working with water and the word, giving new birth, new life. And the power isn't in what we've done, but it's God's pledge and Christ's resurrection. All right, good. We have to stop here because we got our choir coming up, and then choir's only got a certain amount allotted time before our, our next lesson starts. So why don't we conclude with a prayer? We'll, we'll pick up at the very last part of page 14 next time because we got a couple discussion points I wanted to touch on at the bottom of the page there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for saving us, not because of what we've done, but saving us through the, the gift of baptism, giving us a, a clear conscience by your promise and by the power of the resurrection of Jesus. We ask that you use us now as members of your church to give the reason for the hope that we have, uh, the promises found in your word, uh, the rescue that you've given us through your Son. We saw how Peter outlined Christ's death, his suffering, his death, his victory over the devil, his rising to life, his proclamation of victory and his ascending into glory and is seated at the right hand in glory. Help us to have the same confidence as we confess Christ to this world and that, uh, that, that confident we remain our hope in all circumstance. Amen. Thanks, everyone.